Welcome back to Seattle's Morning News. I'm Travis Mayfield in for Dave Ross, along with Colleen O'Brien and Chris Sullivan. Joining us this morning, CBS congressional correspondent Scott McFarland. So, Scott, big news yesterday as former House Speaker Kevin McCarthy announces that he is leaving Congress. Now, that's not necessarily a surprise, but he's leaving at the end of this year, which is like in a matter of weeks. That is a surprise. And it's a big problem. For House Republicans. I mean, this is not a surprise at all. Once Kevin McCarthy became the first ever U.S. House Speaker to be ousted by his colleagues, the writing was kind of on the wall. He wasn't going to hang around much longer. But the House Republicans, which has had a, you know, a perilously fragile, narrow House majority throughout this year and had standoffs and gridlock and deadlocks, is now going to have an even narrower majority. They can lose only three votes on anything after Kevin McCarthy departs. And then they have another retirement coming, an Ohio Republicans taking a university job. They'll be gone in February, which means they'd be able to lose just two votes on anything. That gives any two members of the U.S. House veto power over anything that Republicans want to pass along party lines. Understand how difficult it is to do any business in Congress when any two people can hold you up for something, especially when you have so many renegade members of Congress who are ready to shut the government down. We know that McCarthy obviously has very, very bruised ego. The fight over the last year, I mean, just to become speaker and then obviously the fight to oust him, very bruising for him personally. But publicly, is he saying anything other than my feelings got hurt and my ego got bruised for why he's not, uh, you know, staying in Congress? So far, what he said about his departure has been a choreographed pre-recorded video message. He was absent from the Capitol yesterday. Perhaps no surprise. He released the video on a day he wasn't around. So he hasn't been pressed yet to explain his decision. And there are some questions to ask because even though his colleagues are not surprised by this, Kevin McCarthy was unequivocal after his ouster. We asked him point blank, are you leaving? Are you running for re-election? He said, no, I'm not leaving. Yes, I'm running for re-election. And he added, I'm not a quitter. Well, here he is quitting. And to a degree, He's putting his party in a more vulnerable position in the process because of that narrow majority, because with the expulsion of George Santos and the likelihood that Democrats pick up that seat, that the Democratic minority is wielding new leverage. They can, if they can just peel off a couple of Republicans, hold up everything the GOP wants to do and Kevin McCarthy's departure makes that more of a possibility. One of the other things that I think maybe the average citizen here in Seattle, for example, might not know, but if I did a little bit of reading this morning, McCarthy is like a prolific fundraiser. So how does this potentially impact, you know, the the hope for the GOP to retain the House next year? Now, the new House Speaker, any House Speaker will have some newfound muscle on his arms and biceps to do some fundraising just by having that position having you know, the party's apparatus behind him. But no, Kevin McCarthy was uniquely good at that. And it does complicate things because the U.S. House is vulnerable to being flipped to Democratic control in 2024, just like the U.S. Senate is vulnerable to being flipped from Democrat to Republican control in 2024. Every dollar counts in all these swing districts. And of course, we have one of two of those in Washington state that could flip. And every piece of campaign apparatus, every dollar matters when you're trying to defend or win so many seats. But there's something else. I think it's more pernicious. With these narrow majorities and the stalemates we've seen in the last few months, funding for places like Joint Base Lewis-McCord really becomes a problem 
they need to get bills passed to fund the military bases, service member paychecks. You can't have government shutdowns and expect service members to have their lives not disrupted. And I got to tell you, there's a January deadline coming and a February deadline after that. There's no indication Congress is going to meet the deadlines. Yeah, this makes it even less likely. So is there already infighting among Republicans? Have we heard from other House Republicans now that Kevin McCarthy has said that he's leaving at the end of the year? Is there finger pointing? I mean, what have we heard? Well, the the dozens of House Republicans who voted last week to try to save George Santos are saying, told you so. They were making a very practical vote when they tried to keep George Santos around, keep their majority a little more robust. And they're saying, with Kevin McCarthy going, we really are defanged. But I think what really triggered this was the ouster of McCarthy himself from the Speaker's office. And I talked to one of the eight Republicans who led that, Matt Gates of Florida. And Gates says this is, this is not vindication for him. He was hoping McCarthy would stay, but that he's, he's concerned that McCarthy claimed he was going to stay and then left. And, and that lack of trust in McCarthy is one of the reasons why Republicans moved on him, that he wasn't keeping his word. And to a degree, he's proven that. He said he wasn't going to quit. And then yesterday he quit. And what are we hearing from Democrats this morning? Well, Democrats, <laughs> I think, are focused on two things, first of all keeping their caucus together on key votes. They've shown the ability to do that throughout the year. They're a unified voice on most of these things. Um, They want to win George Santos' seat. That election comes up February 13th. They're going to put a lot of money and manpower into winning that one back and then winning the majority in November. And a Republican Party without a strong leader or a Republican Party, if it doesn't have a unified voice, is vulnerable to being defeated. And we're about to see how strong a leader the new speaker, Mike Johnson, is. And then just quickly, the Kevin McCarthy district, that's Bakersfield. I've been there a few times. It seems to me that's a pretty deeply red seat. Is there any risk of a Democrat taking that seat? Not a city of dreams. Bakersfield, California is a lovely area. It's uh, so red that Democrats likely won't make a play for it. And in a special election where turnout tends to be a little bit lower, um, districts that have a tradition of being one color or the other tend to be easy wins for that color. CBS congressional correspondent Scott McFarland, thank you very much for your time this morning, Scott. Thanks, Travis. Time for Choke Points, State Ferries Edition. After the last attempt to build five new electric hybrid boats fell through, the state is about to start the bidding process all over again. Chris is here with the details. The first of five new hybrid ferries was supposed to roll off the line in 2022. Wait, that's passed. Yeah, that, that exactly. I don't see those out on the water. No, and we could really use them. Yeah. And so I'm just setting the groundwork here for you, Travis. <laughs> the contract with longtime ferry builder Vigor, which used to be Todd Shipyards, fell through. And so we've been in limbo ever since. And the reason why? Well, the bid to first build that first boat was double what the state expected. So the contract was nixed. And here we are today running a ferry system held together by chewing gum and good intentions. To say it's a crisis is an understatement. Well, the ferry system is about to put out to bid for these five boats again. The bidding should go live in the spring. But the ferries put out guidelines for potential bidders on Wednesday. It says it will conduct a nationwide search for bidders. Now that the legislature has allowed the ferry system to look outside the state for builders, that's something we couldn't do until the legislature acted this year. The Seattle Times reports that up to 14 suitors are already potentially lining up from Oregon, Washington, 
California and the Gulf states. So there's some there's some action there. Uh, it says any of the boats built outside Washington must be transported to Bainbridge Island on another ship or barge. They can't sail it here because the sea trials must be done in Puget Sound. So that's one of the restrictions. So they're, they're credits for builders who would do any work in Washington. A lot of other requirements in the minutia in here, but the, the sailing it here is, is kind of one of the interesting ones. The goal is to have a contractor by the summer and have the first boat delivered by 2028. That's four plus years before a new boat in the water. The question now is whether the ferry system can hold on that long. There are 21 boats in the fleet, as we know. Only nine are considered in good condition. It takes 19 to run a full schedule. We've been hanging around 13 to 15 boats in service at a time this year. Another boat had to be taken out of service yesterday for inspection after a hard landing in Southworth. So it looks like heavy seas are going to continue for ferry riders for at least a few more years. First, first question, why are the, why the sailing requirement? Uh, it's one of those things because in order for the sea trials to be done, they can do some preliminary trial work wherever they're built, but they want the sea trials. They don't want it in the water and to, for its worthiness until they do that in the area where it's going to actually be in service. That's one of the requirements they have. Not sure why that is, uh, but it's something that they that they have spelled out specifically to do that here. And also, it's you know I'm not sure they want it sailing around <laughs> the Gulf states to get here uh, uh, as a ferry itself. That could be a pretty rocky trip on yeah. the ocean. Let's be <laughs> it can be pretty difficult. And then second question: Does the ferry system have a plan to get us through those four years? <sighs> Again, chewing gum and, yeah. and crossed fingers. Yeah. All right. Yeah, unfortunately, then <laughs> unfortunately that's, yeah. that's, that's so, the truth. So that is a clear, clear pause and uncomfortable <laughs> silence from Chris directed at the state legislature. Yeah, not the ferry service, <laughs> that's right. not the workers. That's no. right. It's the legislature. Get off your hands. You've been doing it for 15, mm-hmm. 20 years when it comes to the ferry service. Yeah. Welcome back to Seattle's Morning News. In the spirit of our 35th annual Holiday Magic campaign to support Treehouse for foster kids, we're bringing you their stories. Cairo News Radio's Sam Campbell talked to one young woman forged in the fires of hardship, now given a shot at success. Treehouse has been that helping hand when you've been down. Mm -hmm. It's the only reason why I'm here right now, to be honest with you. Abby Lehman is applying to college now, but a few short years ago, she wasn't even sure she could get her high school diploma, the result of years of trauma and the difficulties navigating it. At seven years old, Lehman's mother died. By the time I reached 15, I became a very difficult child with a lot of mental health disorders. Her grandmother took her in, but eventually Lehman dropped out of school. It was mostly the ability of getting to school. Am I getting a ride? What social group will be taking me? Can I be on time? And then when I had to drop out due to logistics of foster care. And then another hit. Her grandmother's health started to decline. So we thought it was the best decision at the time to put me into foster care so my grandma can get the support she needed for her aging and her getting sick a lot. And I could get mental health services that I needed. At 16 years old, Lehman went to foster care. Her description of those years is bleak, shipped from one state to another, devoid of basic support and yet full of impossible choices. I spent a lot of nights sleeping on the office's floor, um, sleeping in hotels, being shipped out of state, um, being moved place to place and not having transportation to get to school or even having a meal was always questionable. I never knew when you're really going to eat. 
I experienced a lot of like mental and like physical abuse in foster care. But in the darkest hours, when we find ourselves trapped between the walls of circumstance, we sometimes find that a shimmer of kindness burns as bright as the sun. So when Treehouse did come into my life, Lehman found hers. Treehouse has provided uh, items of clothing and their gift cards, and they also have like food choices, like Amazon, pretty much whatever you want to tickle your fancy. They're working on getting me a job opportunity to do marketing and advertising and social media. When her car broke down, Lehman says she and her partner had to refill the tires every few hours. They were considering sacrificing meals to save up the money for repairs until once again, Treehouse stepped in. They paid for getting all new tires for our car. And then they also went ahead and told us to do whatever you need for the car. So we also got an entire new brake system and new brake pads. And she's getting gift cards as rewards from Treehouse for reaching her academic goals. I earn money, so I get to get paid to go to school, which is one of the craziest things I've ever even heard ever happening. It was a light after years of hardship, neglect and abuse that she found suspicious. It felt almost too good to be true. Um, after being in foster care, you do get very suspicious of things happening. It was kind of like eye-opening. Like I can get my high school diploma, which I never honestly thought was possible um, before Treehouse. Treehouse was founded decades ago by a group of social workers looking to give foster kids the support they need, help with studies, stipends to keep themselves fed, and a proverbial torch to illuminate the path out of poverty. Lehman says few of her needs were met by social programs and Treehouse was there to fill in the cracks, a group that has never asked for anything in return. It's feeling like someone actually cares enough to support me and someone cares enough to be on my side, which is not something I've experienced in foster care. Now Lehman's getting her GED. She's trying to get into math classes at a community college, and she's going to get her first real apartment. The future she once thought impossible is now within reach. It was kind of like mind-blowing after being unwanted for so long, and someone come running up to you and going, hey, would you like a free laptop? I had so many opportunities given to me that were never possible. That support, she says, didn't just change her life in dollars and cents. It changed her sense of the future. Just my 21st birthday was a huge accomplishment that I have made that far. And now my next huge accomplishment is getting my high school diploma, which was impossible like three years ago. Even as Lehman moves forward with her life, she looks back at all of the nights she spent in hotels, shuffled from one state to another, hungry and in mental anguish. But her hardships and the inequality she faced did not and do not happen in a vacuum. Lehman thinks of every other child, perhaps without parents, having to decide between medicine and their next meal. These challenges persist, and for some, inescapably so. And Lehman wants them to have the same helping hand she was given. So she's asking you, yes you listening to this right now, to get in touch with Treehouse. Even if you can't not donate money, just dropping off a bag of your old clothes will be more than, more than enough you need to do. We really need your help. It's, it's hard out here. I'm Sam Campbell with Cairo News Radio, wishing you and every child in need a happier holiday. Seattle's Morning News. I'm Travis Mayfield in for Dave Ross, along with Colleen O'Brien and Chris Sullivan at the traffic desk. So I'm going to set the scene here. This was Tuesday. The rain was just absolutely
absolutely pouring. It's 634 in the evening, so it's dark. We're in Snohomish County, right on the Skokomish River in Monroe. And apparently there's this tiny little boat. And there is a guy in this boat on this raging, flooding river. Somehow, he's able to call 911 with his cell phone. And he's on with dispatchers. And he's like, uh, basically, I need help. I need rescue. Picking up the story for us now, Snohomish Regional Fire and Rescue Public Information and Education Officer Peter Mangelo joining us this morning. Peter, from here, your team did an incredible job. Multiple locations. There was a drone involved, a rope rescue. Tell us what happened next. Good morning, Travis. Yeah, it was quite an incredible water rescue. And I first have to say it's because of uh, so much training that our crews do on a consistent basis year round, even in swift water rescue that really helped uh, make this rescue successful. But, yeah, on Tuesday night, you, you described it well. It was pitch black, dark, pouring rain. The river was raging. He was coming down the river. Uh, he was speaking with uh, uh, Snowcom, uh, Snow 911, and, and relaying that information to our incident commander and our crews in the field. So we had a plan in place. We were on top of SR-522 right over the Snohomish River when he, you know, because the, the Skycomish comes in and merges with the Snoqualmie and makes the Snohomish. He's coming down the river, and uh, Firefighter Brooks throws the line, and it lands right in the boat. It was an amazing throw as the boat's going down. He grabs onto the rope, and the raging river, as he grabs the rope and he holds on, uh, the boat gets ripped out from underneath his feet. And uh, he falls in the water, tries to hold on, but he's getting pulled under. So he lets go of the rope, starts swimming as hard as you can. I mean, I was there that night, and I was yelling, swim, swim, swim. And sure enough, he grabs onto a tree that was just hanging in the water in the swollen river. And that's when uh, our fire, fire, firefighter and swift water rescue uh, technician jumped in and, and made this incredible save. Uh, he had the, 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 I spoke to him yesterday. His pants were ripped off uh, because of the currents of the river. His shoes, his boots wow. he was wearing got ripped off. And then he had to end up walking uh, about 50 yards through blackberry bushes as our crews had to go through that just to get to him uh, to be, be saved. Uh, he, he's got an incredible story, an incredible rescue that I just, it's, it's almost a scene from Hollywood. How did he end up in the river in the first place in a boat? Yeah, so that, that's something we can't really talk about, but I'm certain that he will be sharing his story shortly. Uh, but I will say this, uh, good people make bad decisions sometimes, and this was not something that uh, was intentional. He just made a, a basic error, a basic mistake uh, that, that caused him to go in, in that boat. Oh, sure. And, and zero judgment here. I'm just glad he's safe and you were there to rescue him. I think for us asking a question like that is to make sure the rest of us don't make that same mistake, right? So we look forward to hearing from him. Um, what do the rest of the rescue crews say about this? Was this a tense situation for them as well? Does it usually end up differently? You know, this particular rescue was a very unique rescue. We had over 23 Snohomish Regional Fire and Rescue firefighters, including Sheriff, uh, Washington State Patrol, and we had an eye in the sky with Sky Valley Fire. They had their drone in the air. If it wasn't for Sky Valley Fire, we would not have been able to put eyes on this guy uh, using thermal cameras as he was coming down the river so that we can position ourselves. Uh, It was an absolute dance with these firefighters and rescue crews to make this work, and uh, you should have seen the excitement on their on their faces when they were coming out of the river. Uh, 
it, it was it's we love to see a good outcome and uh this was one of the most incredible ones i've seen what's amazing to me in listening to your story and reading you know your post on the um the snohomish regional fire and rescue facebook page was how many and if this doesn't work and if this doesn't work and if this doesn't work the contingencies y'all had i mean you were in multiple places you had the drone up you had the rope the rope ready to go you had folks along the bank it was like well as soon as the boat washed out from underneath him you were ready for the next thing is that what your training does absolutely uh training not within our just our own department but also multiple fire districts that we partner with including uh snow 911 our 911 dispatch we all work together and we've trained together on a consistent basis for this type of thing we've we had a uh, snohomish county fire district four in snohomish standing by near stalker farms uh, just in case uh, we couldn't get him at that moment. SR-522, that was the last, pretty much the, the, the point of no return. Uh, we It would be almost impossible to, to rescue him anywhere between uh, 522 and Stalker Farm. So he... Uh, it, it, it was a once in a lifetime rescue in my in my perspective, and it's all because of that training that we do all the time in in swift water in waters like that. But because it was so dark, you, we couldn't go out in the water. It was just too dangerous. Absolutely. So uh, you know, you've been in this region for a long time. We've had stories like this in the past. We know atmospheric rivers are a thing. What tips? What advice do you want everyone to hear today so they don't end up in this situation too? Even though we know how capable you are now of rescuing and saving lives. Yeah, I think the consistent message that we say and we've heard for many years is do not mess around with rivers and waters during floods. They are extremely dangerous. Water, uh, rushing water and swift water is extremely dangerous and it can pull you in like a vacuum cleaner. So just stay away from these rivers. Do not drive past road close signs. Uh, we don't say this to annoy you. We say this because our our experience of pulling people out, it's not worth it. So just stay out of the water during flood season. Did you have any other rescues? I mean, obviously, this was a lot of agencies with a lot of folks out to get this guy out. And, and he's lucky that y'all were able to do this. But I know your resources must have been stretched thin on Tuesday. Anything else that you were out, you know, trying to help folks or save folks or anything else that happened? Yeah. So, uh, Travis, as a matter of fact, thanks for reminding me. Uh, earlier in the day, in the afternoon, uh, we had to rescue four people and a dog uh, in uh, in Monroe uh, because they went out to a, a park uh, right on the Skycomish River uh, next to uh, Woods Creek. And they went out, and, and there's a creek, and then this uh, Skycomish River. They were out there for about an hour. When they came back to walk back, the river had already you know, lifted up, and they were cut off. So we had to, almost some of the same people that were in that that rescue crew that night also were the ones that rescued uh, those four people wow. and their dog uh, in, in Monroe. And so, again, just don't even go anywhere near the yeah. river. Look, for, look at the river from a distance. Uh, and we've done multiple car rescues because they've driven down, you know, a, a road that was filled with water. Their car stalled out, and uh, it's exhausting. So uh, that's why we train for it because of we've seen it so much in the past. Peter Mangelo with Snohomish Regional Fire and Rescue, the Public Information and Education Officer. Please pass along to all of the folks who participated in all the agencies a job well done. And we do look forward to hearing this man's story. Hopefully, he'll be able to share that soon and and what happened and and we do hope that he is okay. Peter, thank you very much. Travis, absolutely great to hear you and Colleen. Uh, Great to hear and take care of yourself. Take care.
Your daily dose of kindness now brought to you by Heritage Homecraft. I'm going to go a little off script here and uh, uses us an opportunity to talk about holiday magic uh, since we're going to be getting to break here in about 60 seconds. Uh, the auction items started yesterday and we have a great one for the show. It includes a show sit-in. So uh, Santa Jim, he came in last year and uh, his partner and they were able to uh, visit the show while we did it. A $50 gift card to Grand Central Bakery just right down the block from us and four passes to the the Museum of History and Industry with a guided tour by Cairo News Radio's resident historian Felix. Oh, Bell. so fun. I think that's the yeah, main selling that's point. That's the one. Think? Yes. That dude knows everything. Totally. So you get to wake up early and sit in with us. I'll get you some donuts. $50 gift card to Grand Central Bakery, four passes to the museum with Felix Bennell telling you everything about that museum. You can text the word magic to 888-973-5476. Lots of other auction items, including Rolling Stones tickets, uh, a fishing trip with Tom Nelson and Dave Wyman. That always is a popular one. Uh, Tom Douglas Hot Stove Society Private Lunch. Oh, yeah, that's Mariner's Diamond Club tickets. And all of the money is going to Treehouse for Foster Kids. Then next week on Tuesday, we're going to be doing our Radiothon, where uh, if you call in and want to donate, you might get one of us picking up the phone. I know I'll be on the phones for a certain amount of time. So wanted to mention that since it is holiday magic time, you can text the word magic, 888-973-5476. It is Mickey time. Mickey, you were reporting this morning on a story. Honestly, I didn't think this still happened. Yeah. This is from Carfax. They just released data showing that odometer rollbacks are on the rise nationwide. I thought car makers put some technology in their cars that just made this impossible. No. But apparently that's not the case. No, no, no. Yes, you're right. Car uh, Carfax editor-in-chief Patrick Olson says scammers can get up to $10,000 more by rolling back the mileage. He estimates that there are over 32,000 vehicles in Washington with the wrong odometer number. 19,000 of those we think are in the Seattle-Tacoma area. Can you believe that? It's That's, crazy to it's think shocking. about. Yeah. yeah. So here's here's how that ends up happening because I'm sure you're wondering, like me, I didn't right. think that that was possible. Are they just driving in reverse? No, 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 no. So if the gauge in the car is damaged, and it needs replacing. If any of the gauges need replacing, that's when someone can potentially roll back the mileage. Mm. So when it's replaced, all the gauges are replaced, mechanics have to re-enter in the last mileage oh. noted. And so scammers out there can go ahead and roll back the odometer, maybe a little bit yeah. more, and then that's where you get the wrong odometer reading. Well, then how would one find out if they're shopping for a used car if it has the right or wrong reading? Well, you have to get a vehicle history report. And if the place that you go to buy a car and you're like, this is a great deal on a car. Now give me the history report. And they refuse to give it to you or they say, I don't know. I don't have it. That that should be a real heads up and that you need to do more investigating. You can always go to Carfax. You could always, you know, um, find out where the last oil change was because they have the stickers on the on the windshield. You can call them and say, hey, listen, I'm thinking about buying this vehicle. The last mileage I show was this. The mileage that I see here in the car is not accurate. What's going on? Oh, you have to be your amateur sleuth just mm-hmm. to buy a used car now. It's too bad. But what did he say? 19,000? I mean, nationwide? Yeah. No, 19,000 in Seattle. In just Seattle? Yeah, I in just that was Seattle. Yeah, no. so I thought the chances of you running into no. one of those slim, but no, two point one, two yeah. point, there are 2.1 million cars nationwide with rolled back odometers, according to Olson, who is the editor-in-chief at Carfax. Wow. 
Yeah. That became a hot commodity. So remember before the pandemic, used cars were pretty inexpensive. Mm-hmm. And then during the pandemic, we saw used cars go, uh, their value go way up. Yeah, the manufacturing then, of the chips and right, parts and exactly. stuff. Exactly. And then yeah. that is when people were like, ooh, this is a used car. Maybe if we just roll back some odometers, we can get more money. So if you are driving around in a vehicle with an odometer reading that is that has been rolled back. Too good to believe. Right. <laughs> yeah, then chances are the value of your car just depreciated by about $10,000. Darn. It's been a while since I bought a used car, but I remember when I did buy a mm-hmm. used car that like they actually gave me a Carfax report. They were so confident yeah. that like I would not find anything. And so, mm-hmm. I mean, I did my own research, but I like, so I, I wonder, it's like you said, if you raise your hand and you're like, uh, can you get this for me or I'm going to go do this. And if they're weird about it, mm-hmm. it seems like that could be a red flag. Yeah, definitely. Um, I remember when I went to go buy my my Jeep and they handed me the, you know, the little fax information, the car fax information. And I I went, OK, this is great, but I'm still going to take it to the mechanic. Yeah. And and that's exactly what I did. And they were like, nope, your car's in great condition. There's one little recall. Other than that, get that fixed and you should be good to go. Great information right. to have. I uh, Honestly, I, I, it's been so long mm-hmm. that I didn't even know that you should look up a vehicle history report, too. Absolutely. So. If it's a used vehicle, for yeah. sure. Yeah. And there are 10 states nationwide with the most vehicles with rolled back odometers. Um, we came in at number 17. Mm. So number three, New York had 100,000. Um, let's see. It's up. About 9% from last year. Texas had 277,000. They're up 12.8%. California has about 469,000 vehicles. They're number one? They're number one. Mm. Go California. There you yeah. go. At least we're not number one in this. No, we're number <laughs> 17. Good Mickey information. Gomez, thank yeah. you very much. <laughs> You're welcome. Thanks for listening to Seattle's Morning News, the podcast. I'm Dave Ross. And I'm Colleen O'Brien. You can find our podcast weekday mornings right at 930. And if you subscribe, you will never miss the Daily Dose of Kindness.